going to start, and maybe you've maybe sensed some of this. Uh, it's been actually kind of a chaotic morning here. And um, yeah, we've had just like lots of things, you know, people sick, volunteers can't come, tech issues. And uh, I'm like, this, and this is a window. I know there's a lot of people that are newer to this church. Authenticity is one of our highest um, values here. And, uh, and even as we were kind of running through the service, it's like, oh my gosh, so many things. I'm getting really excited about maybe what God wants to do this morning. And only I know what I'm about to say. And I think it's um, a pretty like heavy call, but also like a really exciting thing to be called more into the presence of God. And so I'm just going to open us up in prayer. This is um, not exactly how we thought we would start, but we're going to ask the Lord to do something. Um, because if the mic squeaks or if uh, a greeter doesn't show up, that's actually not why we're here. And um, it feels, I'm not a, like a demon around every corner, but it feels like, okay, there's some kind of pushback. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's just the weather. Um, but we're going to invite the Lord's presence. So would you guys bow your heads? Jesus, we want whatever you have for us this morning. And so, Lord, we simply just say, come. Father, we worshiped and we sang um, that we want to be tried by fire um, because we want to, if we're following you, Jesus, we want to look more like you. And so um, would you form us into your image this morning? God, would you fill us with your presence? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, hey, one thing that uh, we're going to kind of move into or change here is we couldn't do this if you were at our uh, uh, part of our church when we were at the Shakespeare Theater. Um, I love having like a response culture. Like you can respond to the Lord if he's saying something or doing something. And uh, responding up front, at least at Shakespeare, meant you were like on the stage with the band and the lights were on you and that was just awkward. And now we have this like really wonderful open space up front. And then you guys make it even easier and don't ever fill the first three pews, which is amazing. Thank you so much for making yourselves so much further from me. Uh, that was sarcasm, FYI. <laughs> Feel free to sit closer. Um, but here's what we're going to do. At any point, probably specifically during worship, um, this area is open. And, um, and I want to demystify, like, if you're up here responding or we're going to have prayer from now on on the sides, like people there to pray for you. That doesn't mean, like, you're confessing your biggest sin or you're going through, like, a near-death experience. Like, this, I want to normalize just responding to what God might be saying or doing. Um, because sometimes a change in posture is what we need to like move our heart into a different posture as well. And so that's just a part of our culture now that you're not like on stage next to Jalen like while he's playing keys. Like you're f plenty far from him. And um, so that's going to start this morning. We're going to have people to pray at the end of this, and that's forever going to be uh, the way that we kind of do things. So um, I'm closing out a series this morning uh, on revival. Specifically in Matthew 6, Jesus said, um, uh, first he was teaching us to pray, and the first thing he said is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so, or I'm sorry, hallowed be thy name. Um, so he starts by teaching us, okay, it starts with worship. It starts by honoring who God is. And then the second thing he says is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And... Um, I only quote the Lord's Prayer in King James. It's like the only verse that I do. Everything else is strictly NIV. But we're kind of digging into thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven, and believing that if God, if Jesus was asking us to pray that, then there must be something there. And so part of the call of the, the follower of Jesus is to make this space look more like that space, um, to pull pieces of heaven or even bits of heaven down to the place that we are. And we actually believe it's things like what John was sharing, like being present and, and filled into the places that we go. And, uh, and so we're praying, we're walking through that. Uh, we had a worship night a couple nights or a couple weeks ago, and Megan, our kids director, came up after and said she was just praying that this would be a thin space, that the, the, the barrier between this space and heaven would become really, really thin. And that's what we're after. And it starts here. It starts with you. Maybe it starts then, in, or it moves on to this room, and maybe the northern OTR and the urban core of Cincinnati, and obviously we want it in the whole world. But revival, we've kind of identified, starts somewhere in here. And we're inviting the kingdom, not just out there for those people, but we're inviting the kingdom in to us. And so at the first week of this, the beginning of January, I said, um, I gave you first some really discouraging, almost depressing statistics about following Jesus and Christianity, um, especially around like young people, millennials and uh, Gen Z. And I said that we have two options. So I want to repeat those two options just so we know what we can get ourselves into. Number one is we can help manage the slow decline of Jesus following uh, in our area. Like we can just give this thing a good death. We can watch as young people are leaving the church by thousands. So we can like help manage like and give, it, give Christianity or give Jesus following at least a good death in America. Or the second option, the one we're choosing, is that we can cry out for revival and ask God to do something that he's done plenty of times before, but he would do it here in us and he would do it here in our city. And so we as a church have just said, yeah, we choose option two. It's hard to choose option one. It's hard to say we're just trying to manage something when it seems like God's calling us to something bigger. And again, I want to emphasize it starts with you. You can't give something that you do not have. And so we're asking for revival to first fill us. This is in your notes. Um, I love this. Bill Johnson, uh, pastor, says that God sparks the flame, but it's the priests that keep it burning. And so revival, make no doubt, revival starts with God. He has to do it. But there is an element that we have that we can steward what he's doing. Just as the priest was supposed to tend to the flame on the altar, that it would never go out, there's things we can do to tend to the flame that God might spark in our hearts. Specifically, who are we around? It's a famous business axiom, but uh, you are a sum of your five closest people. And if your five closest people saw you get encountered by God, just what would they do? Would they help stoke the flame that's inside of you? Or would they uh, help probably put it to rest? Again, not supposed to be convicting, but what would the people that are nearest to you say if you got encountered by God and all of a sudden you're on a deeper level with him than you've ever been before? Part of our job is to keep the flame burning. And so um, there is a woman in the Bible we're going to kind of follow her journey with Jesus. Her name is Mary. And so we're going to go to uh, Luke 10. Uh, Jesus' mom, her name was Mary. It's not her. Another woman who uh, was likely the first person to find Jesus resurrected was Mary Magdalene. Also not her. This is a third Mary. So thanks, Lord, for doing that. Uh, this is Mary of Bethany. 
We're going to be following the journey of Mary of Bethany kind of throughout Scripture. We see three explicit moments that Mary encounters Jesus. And I think the first one is telling because we see the posture she has before him. And the last one, we all of a sudden see, oh my, this is like what it results in. So Luke 10 says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked the Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And, and I've heard a lot of sermons, I've heard a lot of like, um, even exhortations, don't be a Martha. And first of all, Martha is kind of the person you want to be around. Martha pays her bills on time, Martha makes sure you pay your bills on time, Martha is like holding down a steady job, Martha is probably serving you, she's probably the one setting up your meal train. Not being like Martha necessarily isn't the goal. And so sometimes it's like, hey, stop being like Martha. No, no, no. be like Martha after you become like Mary. And so what Jesus says is Martha didn't choose the wrong thing. He says, um, you chose, Mary chose the better thing. So Martha didn't choose the bad thing. She just didn't choose the better thing. And so being willing to change is good, but being conformed in the image of Jesus is better. Showing uh, your love by serving is good. Falling in love is better. Revival is not just image management, but it's something that stirs in the heart. White-knuckling obedience isn't exactly the goal in following Jesus, but it's something that uh, writer, uh, theologian Henry Blackaby says that obedience without love is legalism. And so it's not just the goal of like, how good can I make myself or how much can I serve? It's actually starting with the better thing, which is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take that away from her. That's where revival starts, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being in his presence, hearing from his teachings, reading his word, being, uh, falling in love with him. That is the better thing. Not that Martha did the the bad thing. There was just something better that she could do. And so looking more like Jesus, the invitation isn't just to um, manage our sin. It's to actually enter into a relationship. Um, I, uh, I didn't also, like John, I didn't go to school for what I'm doing now. I, I was in business school. That's what I got my degree in. And um, <clears throat> uh, I, I still kind of dabble in some real estate stuff, love like the business world. And nine years ago, almost nine years ago, I closed my biggest contract yet, my biggest contract that I've done, June 8th, 2013. I uh, married Catherine. There's a picture. Look at those kids. I made like four decisions for our wedding, which is all that I wanted to make. One of them was that I needed to wear a white jacket, which I do kind of regret now. (laughs) Or I should have gone tanning a lot more. But on June 8th, 2013, entered into this major contract. And um, part of, I don't know if you knew this, part of the restrictions of marriage is that once you do this, you can't marry someone else while you're still in that. And I had to actually look it up yesterday um, just to make sure I was right. 
You cannot marry someone else while you're still married to someone previously. You have to end this thing before you move on to the next thing. And so um, that means tomorrow, hypothetically, I can't just spontaneously get married. It's one of the restrictions of the contract that I've made. But if Ohio just woke up and said, you know what's wrong with our society? People don't have enough spouses. They need more than one. And so tomorrow, if legislation changed, and all of a sudden, I, they said, look, that law is old news. Uh, you can marry as many people as you want at one time. Nothing about my day changes tomorrow, right? And I hope that's not shocking to you. Like, that isn't going to change what my day looks like. Because obedience or being in this restrictive area actually isn't the law that's keeping me from doing that, right? It's a relationship. It's like over the last nine or actually 11 years, I've like deepened a relationship with Catherine. I like love her more. I enjoy her. I don't want to do things that hurt her. And I didn't ask her, but I assume that this is not one of the things that she would like me to do is like spontaneously marry someone else. And so tomorrow, if they change the law, I hope she's not worried because I'm not worried. My day doesn't change, not because I'm restricted by the law and it's the only reason I'm not giving into that, but because there's been a relationship that's cultivated that just doesn't even make sense at that point. Super simple, probably way off example for a deep spiritual truth of what entering into relationship with Jesus looks like, not just morality change. Last week, Stephanie said it's not really about uh, doing the holy things. It's about being holy, receiving that you are holy. You have been made holy. And it's out of that place that we start to change the things that we are, not because we have to, but because we have fallen deeply in love with someone that moves us to change our lives. Uh, I love every week we've kind of gone through different revivals uh, that have happened. And one of the most famous revivals recently is in 1904, the Welsh Revival. It was in Wales, and a guy named Evan Roberts started it. And I mean, it was like major tent gatherings. COVID wasn't a thing back then. And, um, and so they started to gather and they started to pray. And all of a sudden, God just broke through in one of their prayer meetings. And, uh, and experts, experts, pastors really, started to come up to Wales from like London and other parts of England. <clears throat> and one of the really self-aware moves that they made is they saw what God was doing. Because they'd been hearing about this revival. And they said, we have to leave. This move is too uh, too strange. This is, move is too holy. All we would do is we would contaminate it. And so the experts, the religious leaders decided we need to let them, these kids, these untrained people that are pursuing God with all their heart, do what they're going to do. And nine months later, 100,000 people had come to know Jesus in Wales. I, uh, I'm, for this series, I started a book on revival uh, called A God-Sized Vision. And I've been reading about all the different revivals that have happened. And here's kind of one excerpt about the Welsh revival. It said, The effect on Welsh society was undeniable. Output from the coal mines famously slowed because the horses wouldn't move. Miners converted in the revival no longer kicked or swore at the horses, so the horses didn't know what to do. I love that. Judges closed their courtrooms with nothing to judge. This is the goal of revival. Revival is an awakening. It's, it's the living again of something. But the goal isn't just that souls know Jesus, although that's like a big, big deal. The goal is that then it seeps into the rest of society where courtrooms closed 
and horses don't know what to do, or whatever the equivalent would be for us, because society has changed. This is revival moving into like a reformation or a renewal of society, and that, that's what we're praying for. That it wouldn't just be souls, it would be something that actually seeps into the rest of the world, and this place starts to look more like that place. So Mary, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. She chooses the better thing. And uh, a few, uh, a little bit after that, her brother, Lazarus, actually dies. At first he was sick, and, and Mary and Martha sent for Jesus because he was famous for healing sick people. And Jesus, when he gets the news that his friend is sick, he actually seems to slow down and takes his time and doesn't get there until after his friend Lazarus has died. And so when Jesus walks into town and he hears that his friend Lazarus has died, he sends for Mary and asks her to come. And in John eleven twenty nine, 29, we're going to be in John 11 now, it says, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 32, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The original language actually gives us a sense that he was angry. Jesus was angry at the situation. It says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, primarily uh, it, which is death and the effects that death has. And so he looks at the situation, and he sees a dead friend and a grieving friend, and he gets angry in his spirit because that's not the way that it should be. So he says, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Then Jesus wept. He goes to the tomb, and he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. I love Martha. Super practical all the time. Again, you want a friend like Martha. No, no, no. This is going to smell. We don't want to do this. But they moved, the, they moved the stone. It says, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his head. And Jesus said to them, catch this, take off those grave clothes. This man resurrected from the dead, and Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So now, at this point in her life, Mary has been with Jesus. She sat at his feet. She's fallen in love with his presence. And now she's experienced his love and power. She's seen him do something that is absolutely unheard of. She falls in love with who he is, but then sees and experiences his power. Mary is starting to experience a bit of revival. She's starting to, I imagine, get a little bit of a flame that this is not just a normal man, but this is a man worth giving everything for. She's been in his presence. She's seen the great and amazing things that he can do. And today, as we close this series, and maybe you haven't been here for the last few weeks, I encourage you to go back and listen. We've kind of walked through three parts, three components of revival. First of all, it's holiness. Last week, Stephanie talked about holiness, and the big idea is that it's not something we do, it's something that we are if we are in Jesus. And starting from that place, letting that be the place that we move into everything else. Two weeks ago, I talked about prayer and this idea that being a prayerful person is both communing and interceding with God. 
Interceding meaning we're crying out. We're doing some of these things. Like, that's not as it should be. What's going on in the nation is not as it should be. Or my city, or my workplace, or my roommate, or my spouse, or my best friend. That's not as it should be. In standing between the injustice and in God and saying, God, would you do something about this now? It's interceding and it's communing, being with Jesus. And oftentimes in moments of revival, either personal or corporate, we start to see miracles. And Rob, uh, the second week of this series, said that miracles often take stepping out in faith. And so it's holiness and prayer that lead us to see and lead us to take moves that make us not comfortable. I want to be uh, a church. I want us to be people that reflect the holiness of Jesus the power of prayer, and a church that steps out in faith to see the miraculous. Uh, in Proverbs 27, I love uh, this. It's just kind of a, a book of axioms on how to live life. And one piece of wisdom that the writer of Proverbs gives in 27, verse 7, is that a person who is full refuses honey. Honey was kind of like the best, the sweetest food at that time. A person who is full refuses honey, but even bitter food tastes sweet to the hungry. And uh, in the Marlin house, again, a couple business majors, we're big on delegation, automation, all of those things. And uh, so all of the like home tasks have been like given to one of us or the other. And the one that's not in my realm is grocery shopping because I'm terrible at it. And, uh, and when I go, uh, I go into a grocery store, I literally feel like I feel really dumb. Um, it's just not like the place that I'm comfortable at. Give me a budget meeting, put me in a conference room, put me with a demonized man, put me in an arena for a sports game. Comfortable with all of those places more than I am in a grocery store. And I know that the signs are there. Just last, yesterday, I had to go pick up club soda, and it took me like 15 minutes because it's not in the three aisles where the liquids are. It's in the alcohol. The grocery stores are just stupid. And I know that the, the signs say things, but I think that they're actually there to mislead you. I, every time I go, well, here's what I have to do, and this is why it takes me so long, I have to walk through every aisle. And we have big Kroger's here, so every aisle just to find what I'm looking for. And a few months ago, Catherine, I remember she asked me to pick up something on my way home. It was dinner time. I was super hungry. It was like nutmeg. And um, I remember I had to do my whole thing, walk through all the aisles, and I'm hungry, which you know is a bad time to go to the grocery store. And so I start picking out all of the things I imagined that we needed, Every time I go to the grocery store, I end up with chips and salsa. And then I come home, and we have like six jars of salsa from like the, probably the last six times I've gone to the grocery. I have a picture of what my cart looked like. I took a picture of it. That's not mine, but it actually is really close. I would have Diet Mountain Dew. Instead of Chips Ahoy, I had Oreos. And then I had chips, salsa, and I think like Cheez-Its. And, and then I did find the nutmeg. That, and I went just for nutmeg. The problem was I went hungry, and I just am not that good at grocery shopping, but I went hungry. And in light of that, my inhibition or my even ability to be critical or think critically was really, really low. That's a bad thing when you go grocery shopping. What Proverbs is saying actually is maybe that's a good thing when you step into a place of God. Like maybe it's okay that you're hungry because all of a sudden, whatever God's doing in a room, you just receive. It's a bad thing at the grocery store. You end up with Oreos. You end up with chips and salsa. It's a good thing when you walk into a place like this, when you walk into a house group, and you walk into a moment of worship. Because when we're full, when we think we don't need God, we have a high, critical spirit. Have you ever come to church and been annoyed? 
That's rhetorical, so thanks for not answering. <laughs> Have you ever come to church and been like, ugh, the, the music is just too loud? I think we sang that song last week. Maybe you've come here and said, that pastor was distractingly funny. He was obnoxiously charming. I don't know what you feel when you come here. I have gone to church. I have gone into moments, like spiritual moments, and felt like I need to do this when I get home. I need to do that. And my critical spirit is high. And what Proverbs is saying is actually it's a good thing. It's a good thing to come hungry. The key to revival, the key to sustaining the revival is to stay hungry because when God's doing something in a room, when God's throwing something at you, you're ready for it. What does it look like to actually cultivate a hunger that is sustaining, not a flash in the pan, but a hunger that is sustaining for revival? Mary started to cultivate this hunger for Jesus, and it culminated close to his death. Uh, it says in John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, classic, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary walked into a situation, and she didn't decide to critique it, but she decided to be like wrecked by it. When we move into a place where God is active, we're not there to critique it, we're there to be wrecked by it. We're not there to organize it, we're there to be rearranged by it. We're not there to steward it, specifically, or lead it. We're there to participate in it. And so Mary sees what's happening. She knows what's coming for Jesus. It's the same Mary who has been with him, has seen him move. And what I get a sense of from Mary is I don't, I don't see any signs that her EQ is like super low. I don't see any signs that she was just oblivious to other people. See, Mary walked in, and we read this, and this is like a hall of faith moment. We love this story. We've seen worship songs, but when Mary did it, nobody got it. Nobody understood what she was doing. Nobody was taking pictures, said, I bet they start singing songs about this alabaster jar. Nobody was watching her saying, man, this is such a high move of honor. Nobody was cheering her on as she worshiped Jesus. No one in the room understood. Actually, some hated the move. Some started to critique the move of God. Except for one person got it. One person received what Mary was doing. One person knew that this was costing her more than a year's wages. One person knew that this was going to likely cost her her reputation, her status, her relationships. One person in that whole room, critiqued by tens, twenties, maybe a hundred, were there to witness this. And only one person understood what she was doing. That she was not just pouring out a large dollar amount of perfume. She was pouring out her dignity. This was scandalous. She was giving up everything that she had. Because apparently she felt like Jesus was worth it. In Mark 14, the same story is told. 
but a different word is used. In Mark 14, it says that Mary walked into the room and she broke the bottle. And I was reading this uh, story and I was reading a book on worship like eight months ago. It was in May. I was on a plane and I just knew, and the Lord doesn't always speak to me like this, but I couldn't stop saying that phrase. I probably looked crazy. Break the bottle, like sitting on a plane. Break the bottle. And I, I felt like the Lord said, Chris, this is for you. And this is for your church. And for the last eight months, I've sat on this phrase, and I haven't known exactly what to do with it, and I still think it's not fully formed, but in closing out a series on revival, it feels fitting to talk about what it looks like to break the bottle. See, when you break the bottle, she has no interest in salvaging anything. See, what I would do, maybe what you would do, is you would take like a cotton swab, and you'd get a little bit out there, and you'd save the rest. Because that's still going to smell. But she wasted it all. Nothing was left. She broke the bottle. Breaking the bottle means that there is no cost that is too high. And I want you to imagine being there. Actually, I want you to imagine what it would have cost her to do this. I want you to imagine being so encapsulated and encountered by Jesus that fear of man just falls off of you. I want you to imagine what breaking the bottle might look like in your life. See, revival, I believe, really starts here. Revival starts with you, and revival can start now. We have to steward it, but it starts here, and it starts by breaking the bottle. It starts by breaking the bottle. It starts by stewarding the flame that God has put inside of you. The band can come up. And I want to end just with this question. Where are you salvaging? Break the bottle. Where are you hedging your bets with Jesus? Break the bottle. Where are you holding something back? Break the bottle. Take a cue from Mary. It says that at the end of this, Jesus said, I'm going to tell this story every time the gospel is preached. There was something that was rewarded for her breaking the bottle and giving it all. Nothing was held back. Um, for me... Just a moment, again, vulnerability. For me it's, me, it's fear of rejection. I feel like in these last eight months, uh, following Jesus has cost me something. And I've been tempted, and often do, dab some of that out instead of just breaking it. It's fear of, if I really go all in for Jesus, uh, losing specifically losing friends. I don't know what it is for you. But I feel like the Lord is asking us as a family to break the bottles that we have and lay it all out for Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray, but right after I pray, the front is open. There's going to be people on the sides to pray with you. It is silly to come in here with a burden and leave with the same one. Get prayer. Respond to the Lord. If there needs to be a posture change in order for a heart change, then do that. Kneel, lay down raise your hands, do whatever it takes. But as a family, I'm just going to invite you to break whatever the last thing you're holding on to is.
So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, take what you're worthy of. Jesus, take what you're worthy of. We want to follow you no matter the cost.